The text for the sermon this morning comes out of Ezekiel chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. So we're just going to prime the pump as it were, starting out on chapter 13. And this is what Ezekiel is, is, tells us, and this is what Ezekiel is told. The word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh came to me, son of man. Prophesy against the prophets. I'll let that sit. (laughs) Prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says the Lord God, woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets have been like jackals among the ruins, O Israel. You have not gone up into the breaches or built up a wall for the house of Israel that it might stand in battle in the day of Yahweh. These are the words of the Lord, and so we say, thanks be to God. So as you might have deduced, we will be talking this morning and probably for the next couple of Sundays about false prophets and true prophets, about the gift and the work and the meaning of prophecy, of which I mean for today to be just a, a, a way to, to kind of give you the lay of the land, a sense of what we'll be talking about and, a, and a, an overview of these first five verses. So let me start just by giving you a fundamental definition. What is a prophet? Okay, What is a prophet? A prophet, most fundamentally, most foundationally, is one who says God's words, okay? And we can stop there for the most fundamental definition. Uh, When I was preparing for the sermon, actually my first kind of run at it was one who speaks God's words to God's people, which generally is true, but then I immediately thought of Jonah, right? Who goes to not God's people, but still to speak God's words. Or perhaps we should say of Nineveh, not yet God's people, because they did repent. And so it is the job of the prophet to speak God's words. Sometimes in the course of prophetic work, that involves what we call foretelling. Or you might say predicting the future, though predicting has never been a strong enough term for me and for my liking. Uh, So just foretelling, stating the future. Sometimes that is a uh, significant part of prophetic work. And as, as indeed we've seen in Ezekiel, that he is trying to convince people that something is coming, particularly the destruction of Jerusalem as judgment for their sin, and they don't believe him. But again, most of Ezekiel's preaching has not so much been, uh, let, me, let me parse this carefully, in terms of like the word count of Ezekiel's preaching, most of it has not been about the future. It's been future, why? Because you've uh, broken covenant with God, not walked in his ways, and so on. And so, the existence of false prophets, let's just start there. We know our text talks about false prophets. The existence of false word of God carriers means that the people of God must always be mindful, be watchful, and carefully examine what people are saying in the name of God to the people of God with the word of God, right? We must always be careful. And so, We've talked about this uh, in our Wednesday night class that I always want to be careful about the distinction of um, 
that in, in a world and in our present cultural moment that tends to be highly suspicious of all authorities, it's, it's really unsatisfying for me to pretend like you should never trust me or your elders. And, and here's what I mean. I, I, just, I am one who wants to be careful to say, don't believe anything I tell you. You have to go home and verify every single word for yourself because I could be lying. And I, that's true as far as it goes. But if I said that to you every Sunday, I'd forgive you if you stopped showing up. <laughs> like, well, if he doesn't really want us to believe what he says, then what are we doing? At the same time, we have these people in the book of Acts called Bereans who, as it were, vetted and, and verified the stuff that Paul said to make sure that what he was preaching was indeed the Word of God, which is a good practice for us to have. What false prophecy and, and what this chapter itself is mainly about is the third commandment, if you're familiar with it. From the book of Exodus, uh, within the Ten Commandments, number three is you shall not take the name of Yahweh your God. Now remember that. This is, that's, why I, that's why sometimes whenever the, you have the all capital Lord, why I say Yahweh, because that's what's there in the Hebrew, it is the name, God's name that He gave to His people. Yahweh your God in vain. Don't take that name in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And typically, the way we kind of apply that in, in our present, and, and have applied it for decades, if not a lot longer, is, right, if, I mean, if you've got a hammer and a nail and you hit your thumb, <laughs> right, you don't yell out Jesus, right, because that would be taking the Lord's name in vain. And look, as, as far as that goes, I suppose that's true. Uh, in that sense, you are engaging in the kind of uh, taking something in vain, what's actually, that's the most basic meaning of the term vulgarity. You're, you're engaging in a vulgarity that takes something that is high and exalted and holy and lowering it to be light and, and worthless. And that, so that's true as far as it goes. But the third commandment is talking about something so much bigger, so much uh, grander and in a sense so much more weighty than just don't yell out something inappropriate when you hit your thumb or stub your toe, okay? What the third commandment is mainly concerned about is do not say that Yahweh your God has said something if he hasn't said it. That's really, or don't do something in the name of God that is not of God. Um, and so, that's exactly the problem that we see with these false prophets in Ezekiel's day. And as I've, as I've already hinted at, there's a lot to say about false prophets. I'm not going to say everything I might say this Sunday or next Sunday, though I will say more next Sunday. What I want to do is just kind of, again, give you an overview of the land with these first five verses. And so, the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the prophets who are prophesying. What do we learn about them? They are prophesying from their own hearts, the text says. From their own hearts, verse 2. Hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says the Lord God, woe to foolish prophets who follow their own spirit. Okay, so what are we learning about these false prophets? They speak from their own hearts and they follow their own spirit. So what's missing are the words of God and the spirit of God. Okay. Christianity, as a religion, is really weird for a lot of reasons. But one of them is that 
Christianity actually has as one of its core ideas and concepts of human sin is this proclamation, and that is, uh, thou shalt not trust your own heart. Don't trust it. Don't trust it. It's not trustworthy. Your own heart will very often be the, as it were, the internal voice that presses you towards sin. The prophet Jeremiah tells us about this very thing in a text that's very familiar to many of you. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? So, I mean, just take a minute with, those, with that language. Deceitful, which means your heart lies to you. Desperately sick. So if you think about... Uh, a person who's trying to communicate, but they are desperately sick, probably communication not going so good. Yeah? Uh, so maybe, maybe stutters or, or groans or grunts are coming out. Who can understand it? So it's like your heart is deceitful, and, but even if it wasn't so bad, you really, I mean, do you understand your own heart? Do you understand the random impulses that hit you in the middle of the day? The random ideas you get that just like pop into your head, the random sins that you want to commit against your neighbor, and then, you know, five minutes later, you're, where did that come from? What sort of person am I, right? And, and so you're, in, this, in this effort, what we, what we can acknowledge, uh, this is from uh, another part in the Psalms, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, right? Part of that fearfully, wonderfully made means sometimes it's even hard for you to understand you. Let's go back to Ezekiel, though. So he tells us that these prophets are speaking from their own hearts, which is really important for us to get because I think it's taken for granted in our present cultural moment that speaking from your heart is always a good thing. It's not. <laughs> and again, why? Because your heart's not very trustworthy, okay? Uh, our problem is that, and I, by our, I mean a problem that I perceive among Christians today. So people who love Jesus, confess Jesus, and by the way, confess Jeremiah 17.9, right? You ask them, do you believe your heart is deceitful? Yes, I do. Do you believe that you shouldn't trust your heart? Yes, I believe that. However, one thing that I have seen is that we have a tendency to say we don't trust our heart, and then we take our impulses that if we were unbelievers would simply be impulses and we call those the Holy Spirit, right? We baptize our impulses. And some of that is just, it's, it's just Western thinking, like stuff like, um, I don't know, I don't know if I can blame it on like John Wayne movies and stuff like that, but there's, a, there's kind of a cultural thing in America like trust your gut. Your gut is always trustworthy. Whatever kind of hits your gut, that's always what you go with. It's always dependable. It's always trustworthy. There's a tendency in American evangelicalism to take trust your gut-ism and baptize it, and we, don't, we just don't call it our gut, we call it the Holy Spirit. This can be very dangerous, okay? So I'm, I'm just wanting to offer you, as a word right here, to, to kind of question that tendency in yourself carefully. Because as soon as you say, God has told me X, all I can say is, biblically speaking, and we'll explore this more, but biblically speaking, you'd better be right, Okay? Because anything short of being exactly precisely right about what God has said right, is a violation of the third commandment. And mostly what I'm trying to communicate to you there, mostly I just wish that a lot more of our God told me would be, it seems to me, that. Okay? Just in that sense, taking a little bit of humility and, and, and just saying, rather than maybe trying to, to uh, give our words 
a certain kind of unquestionable, untouchable authority. We would instead say, you know, as far as I can discern, as far as I can see, from, from what I've learned, from what the Lord has taught me even, this is kind of, um, I, I, just, I wish we would qualify our speech a bit more when we speak this way. And so, how, how do we do that? What's at least one way that we do that? Well, at least one way is that we actually speak the words of God. That was the primary job of the prophet, to remind God's people that they had forgotten God's words. And so, one way, and I'm, I'm not so much talking about the gift of prophecy, that'll be for a later time, but in terms of what I'm just going to call broadly this prophetic activity that happens in our midst, in our body, and Lord willing, in sermons, is to speak the word of God to each other in our particular situations and moments, but make sure, of course, that you speak it, when you speak it, you speak it in context, Right? So here's what I mean. If someone came to me and said, Pastor Brian, I have terrible news. I just heard that my best friend cheated on his wife and their marriage is a wreck. And if I were to to look at you and say, well, you know, the Bible says go and do likewise. Now, the Bible does say go and do likewise, but... We, we might just say that's a, just, just a mild example. No, no, that's a big example of taking something out of context, right? And so, so when you're speaking words of God to each other to encourage, to edify, even to correct, we want to make sure that we're speaking them in the context as they were intended. Uh, a, a more practical example, one that's maybe more familiar to you. If we can jump over to uh, this next text I've got here, 1 Thessalonians 5.22. And this is in the King James Version. Abstain from all appearance of evil. Okay? Some of you are familiar with this text. And the way that that's been used and applied in a lot of circumstances is to say if anything that you encounter, even possibly, maybe, sort of, just a little bit, looks like, has the appearance of evil, don't do it. Right? So, uh, I mean, you can see how that might be applied in a lot of different situations. You know, I mean, you could, if you were super consistent, just say, I'm just going to stay away from all the sinners and the, the tax collectors because, you know, then somebody might see me with them. It might appear like I'm engaging in sin, and that would be really bad, except then, of course, you know where I'm going with that. That was kind of what Jesus did. And so what do we do with this text then? Abstain, I mean, all appearance of evil, that's quite a load to carry because now I'm not just accountable for, like, what <coughs> I do and what kind of evil my heart is oriented towards, but I'm, I'm accountable for you and just your sheer perception of it. Not quite. So, many of you know that right now the, the, the circus or some form of it is in town, and it would not be crazy if, uh, if there was a banner outside the circus saying, now appearing, okay? And you would know that that sign did not mean that it would have the appearance of a circus. It, it, be, it mean now appearing. It's here. It's manifest. It's right in front of you. It's now appearing. Be, like, behold, it's right here. When we jump over to the same passage uh, in the ESV, here's the translation. Abstain from every form of evil. Some translations, every manifestation of evil. You see? You see the difference. How when I see appearance, now is that a mistranslation? Well, no. When the King James was translated, appearance was a perfectly reasonable way to express that idea. It's just we've, our language is now kind of moved in the direction where now when we hear appearance, we think any possible like, way to see it the appearance of things. Okay, so what's my point there? When we're speaking the words of God to each other, we want to make sure that we are speaking them with an understanding of what they they mean, 
of, uh, that, we, that we don't deliver a meaning that, in fact, uh, is not present in the text. And second, make sure you speak it often, speaking the words of God often to one another uh, to help us navigate all manner of things. And so, so that's a way to make sure that the, that the people among us exercising this activity of speaking God's word to one another are accountable because we can ask these questions, right? So if you're encouraging me with the word of God, and we can know together, is that what it says and is that what it means? Right? Let's go to the next verse. Verse 4, which is where we learn something else about these false teachers. Your prophets have become like jackals. Some translation will have foxes. The, the word can go either way there, interestingly enough. Uh, jackals among ruins, O Israel. Okay. What's going on there? Okay, the prophets, the false prophets, uh, it, you know, it seems that the Lord on high is engaging in kind of name-calling. Right? saying that these false prophets are acting like wild animals. Why? Or, or what does that mean practically? Well, since the garden, since the garden and Adam and Eve's fall into sin, and you remember that that temptation was mainly about wanting to be like God. Since then, that's been the impulse in your heart and in mine. Right? We want to be like God. Since the garden, one way we've sought to be like God is to crave attention and acclaim which is what these false prophets are doing, to crave attention and acclaim. In other words, praise. It's what we give to God. It's what we've been singing about, praising God. And that is, in fact, what your heart and my heart is prone to do and prone to seek and prone to chase after, a kind of acclaim or even uh, to, to be famous, to, be, to make sure people know your name, to have that kind of influence and power to want to be like God. For some... The, the attention they are seeking is really just that others agree with them. Facebook is great for this, right? Because you can literally count up the likes, man. For others, it is why the most offensive passages in the Bible are the ones about quietness and contentment, right? Because that really threatens kind of the system they have of acquiring attention and acclaim from others. For some, the attention gets them money, and our mind, I mean, if you're like me, your mind went to, you know, modern, a lot of modern TV preachers. Uh, Joel Osteen, his name comes to mind. Kenneth Copeland is another one that comes to mind. False teachers are sometimes outside of the local church. Uh, and that, what I mean by that is typically under no authority, in submission to nobody, accountable to nobody. So they have to build up and shore up their own power over people. I'm going to give you an example of this that I find absolutely chilling. Go ahead to the next one. This is a, this is a children's coloring page in a church. I, um, I genuinely forget where it is. I know it's Elevation Church, by a pastor by a fellow named Stephen Furtick. And so it's, it's this lovely little children's coloring page, unity. All right, so what's the Christian definition of unity? Here's the definition this coloring page gives. We are united under the visionary. Oh, my. And then at the bottom, Elevation Church is built on the vision God gave Pastor Stephen. We will protect our unity in supporting his vision. Let me be frank with you. If we ever hand out something like this on a Sunday morning that says your unity is found in being united behind me or something to that extent, I want you to call up the presbytery and say, sick him. <laughs> right? Just let him have it. Um, and so... 
with that in mind, so this, I, I think that this can be a real temptation to establish a sense of unity around a person, right? around, around a person and their name and their ministry and their work. There's also a sense, you can move on to the next one, Burley, in which we develop dependencies on teachers who are, um, who are not heretics. Let me say this. There, there's, a, there's also a way in which we as Christians can develop certain kind of dependencies on teachers. Who It's, it's like they're not, they're not teaching false doctrine. I'll say it this way. Less than heretics, but more than wise. Okay? So it's, it's like there's no false teaching present, but, but the, the meals they're serving are still fairly cotton candy-ish in the sense that like if you were to feed on that a great deal, uh, it's, what it's doing is it's actually separating you from the Word. Um, but they, in other words, I'm saying that a, a teacher might speak in ways that we find more appealing or even, hey, more understandable. The effect can be that we only like to hear the Bible when it's mediated through those people, which can be very dangerous. Only hearing the Bible when it's mediated to us by certain people. One, for instance, uh, so, so how do you know? You know, maybe I've just raised a bunch of questions in your head like, okay, well, what exactly are you getting out there? And maybe that's its own kind of, kind of talk and sermon and pursuit. But like, I'll just give you a for instance. For instance, a, a question that I always want to ask about people who are engaged in a teaching ministry, a very simple, very basic question, do they talk about sin, right? And not is, not is that all they talk about, not is that, you know, most of what they talk, but just do they talk about it? Sin as, um, as rejecting the law of God, uh, rebelling against Him, uh, rejecting what His Word says, do they talk about sin? Or do they substitute the different kind of language, like the language of like brokenness or, or mistakes? Now, certainly, brokenness is real. Like, you are, because of sin, broken people. But brokenness and sin are not the same thing, right? So I'm not saying that anybody who talks about brokenness is, is like bad. No, that's, I'll, I'll talk about it. That's fine. To speak of ourselves as broken sinners, absolutely fine. You saw what I did. I paired the two together. But, so, but there's, there is a tendency that I've seen to only speak of like broke, our brokenness and our mistakes, which is really passive and kind of absolves us from any guilt, right? It's like, well, I'm just, I'm like a toy that doesn't work correctly, so you can hardly blame me for any of that. Finally, as I said earlier, some false prophets are in it for the money. That's always something to watch out for. That um, seems to be the most obvious application of this, this jackal or fox picture. Uh, that is, they're, they're in it for the food. They're, they're scavengers. They're um, picking off people who are vulnerable. Um, and typically... Uh, Typically it is that people who are most vulnerable to false teaching and false teachers are those who are experiencing a broken heart, okay, bitterness in their heart, or boredom in their mind. Those three things. I've just, again, I've, it's, it's patterns that I've noticed speaking just in terms of my experience. Somebody who's navigating a broken heart and all, for whatever reason in those sorrows Bitterness in their relationships or anger or even kind of rage at somebody or even just their circumstances or spiritual boredom. Just God's gotten kind of boring. 
And, and in, in those three situations, I found, found to be people to be most susceptible to the, to the, to the jackals, to the foxes of, of false teaching. In fact, there's this book, um, some of you may be familiar with this thing called the Didache, which is a really, really cool kind of, as best we can tell, it's a first century, maybe early second century document that just outlines some practices of the early church. So it's not scripture. It's not inspired. It's not commandments from God. But it's just kind of cool. It's, it's a little window into uh, a lot of the, the ways and kind of practices and even the liturgies uh, and patterns that were used in, among the very earliest Christians. In fact, the prayer that I often pray uh, when we come here to the Lord's table uh, is a prayer that I've taken from the Didache and, and adapted a little bit for our purposes. Uh, but in the Didache, it's, it's kind of funny. There's a section about false prophets and false teachers. And one of the lines in there, it's just like, if he comes to you and asks for money, he's a false teacher. Show him the door. I kind of read that and I'm like, have you even like watched TBN? If you're not familiar with TBN, it's the Trash and Blasphemy, excuse me, the Trinity Broadcasting uh, Network. Uh, and so it's a TV with the t- channel with the TV preachers. Um, and so, so that's just interesting to me that even in the earliest times, they're saying if, if a guy comes to you and basically, you know, he's just say, hey, you know, you should give me money. Yeah, he's probably, he's probably a false prophet. And so the words, so what separates then the words from a false prophet from the words of God's true prophets? Look back at the text. You have not gone up into the breaches or built up a wall for the house of Israel, that it might stand in battle in the day of the Lord. This is the accusation on the false prophets. In other words, what their words do is cultivate weakness in the people of God and not the good kind of weakness that we actually want to cultivate in ourselves. That is the opposite of worldly strength, the one where uh, the Lord Jesus says to Paul, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Not that kind of weakness. This is the kind of weakness that is way vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. And so what a false prophet does, listen, one of the most obvious things a false prophet does, what they were doing in Israel, is bring you comfort in your circumstances. So here are your circumstances. Don't worry. It's all going to get better. It's all going to get better. Everything's going to be fine. God basically owes you. It's going to be okay, right? So, so using your circumstances as the instrument of comfort. That is not to say that your circumstances don't matter. Heaven help us. You know they do. Lord have mercy. You know they do. But the words of God give you comfort in spite of your circumstances. So the comforts that God gives, this is the wonderful thing about God's promises, y'all, is that they are endlessly applicable regardless of who you are or where you live or what, or what you've been through or any of that, any of that. They're, they're just endlessly applicable because they're not based on circumstances. I mean, it is really remarkable to think that, uh, you know, most of the new, uh, we, we've got New Testament letters, Scripture that we live by today that's written from prison, right? Prison for preaching the name of Jesus. But what Ezekiel is saying here is that these, the words of these false prophets have sown in a kind of heart weakness in the people. Why? Well, think about it. If they're words from false prophets, then they're not words from God. And what I've tried to convince you of uh, starting a few weeks back uh, when we talked about the connection between God's presence and God's promises 
Uh, such that the more that I've been thinking about that and the more I'm reading about that, the more I'm convinced that it's really hard to separate those two things. So to have God's promises is to have God's presence. And God is present in the midst of his people by way of assuring them of his promises. This is what breaks a people, though. False comfort. False comfort. That is what breaks a people because they put their hope in the words of comfort that fail them rather than the words of the one who never fails. This is why we want to... Uh, can I put it this way? Why we want to, yeah, work as hard as we can. I'm thinking of, of the Apostle Paul here talking about beating his body into submission. You know, running at this as much as we can to be people of all the words of God, not just the ones that talk about our comfort but to be people of all the words of God so that we can actually be equipped for all the different circumstances of life. This is what the book of Psalms is for, by the way. One of the things that I'm, I'm really hoping that will be cultivated and grow out of our men's breakfast is this idea that one of the most helpful things you can do is be praying the Psalms, using God's words to lift up prayers to Him. And so then... What is it that a true prophetic word does in the, midst of, in the midst of God's people? Well, number one, in opposition to the words of false prophets that, uh, that speak ease and comfort, these words will often be difficult for us to hear. God's words, even the difficult words, characterize our community. Because we know that God speaks different words at different times, different circumstances. Second, we are seeking a dependency on the word, not a dependency on people. Right? Remember the coloring page. We are not seeking a dependency on a man or a pastor. We are seeking dependency on the word of God, on Christ crucified and risen. Not a dependency on people. Not a dependency on... Um, kind of, I don't know how to put this, finally finding the thing, right? And I'm not talking about rooting ourselves in Scripture, but whatever the latest thing is. And this is why, I know I frustrate some of you, but I love you very much, and we're going to get on just fine, don't worry. But I tend to be really um, suspicious of fads or, or the, next, the next thing in like church ministry that gets marketed and boxed and packaged and sold, um, whatever it is. Like the latest fad or the latest movement or the latest thing, whatever the latest thing is, that finally, now that we've found this thing, after 2,000 years of being Christians, we've finally found the key that Jesus forgot to mention. And so here's the key. Now you can unlock all the doors in your life and solve all the problems in your church. And we finally have the thing, guys. We're basically done after this. Yeah, okay. (laughs) I mean, come back to me in five years when nobody even remembers the name of that thing anymore. Um, well, you know, this is a movement. It's a movement. Okay, where's it going? <laughs> if it's a movement, where's it moving to? Well, we don't know. You just, you just got to get on the train, man, because you're going to... Okay, no, that's... Sorry, I'm meddling now. Third, God will sow in us the strength to endure anything by His words, but not because we're strong people. Let me say that again. God will, God will put in us by His grace, by His promises, the strength to endure anything. That's why we prayed for Melissa and her family a moment ago. Because we believe that God's going to put in y'all the strength to endure. 
And that's going to look different at different times. But it's not because we're strong people. It's because we're weak people with a strong God. Okay? Now, I really want you to get this because your flesh is like hardwired to believe that the thing about Christianity is that it makes you strong. We really want to believe that, y'all. I really want to believe that. I really want to believe that Christianity makes me powerful. No, it doesn't. Sometimes it just wastes you and leaves you in your weakness so that you know without a doubt that you have a strong God. Do you realize that if Christianity made you strong and unflappable and absolutely unmovable, everybody would be a Christian. They're just, we have no trouble with it at all. Christianity is offensive to the world because it's the gospel of a dead man on a cross who does not look strong. And we follow after Him. We follow after Him, right? Ordinary man from Nazareth. Can anything good, can anything strong, grand, great come from Nazareth? God will put in us the strength to endure, not because we are strong, not because we can take care of all our difficulties, but because God's own words will be our otherworldly strength. That if we are honest, we'll often look to the world like weakness. The cross looks like weakness to the world. Confession of the faith and contentment in the midst of circumstances looks like weakness to the world. It doesn't look like strength. Strength is you've got to get out there and transform everything so that, you, so that your life is good. But contentment? Oof, that looks like weakness. And so we are a people who will often look weak to the world. But we will be given the strength to endure because of the words from our God. And so as you've seen, this, this, this was just a little overview to give you a sense of what it means when Ezekiel speaks this word to God's people, what his aims are and what our aims should be as we speak God's words to one another. And so it's my hope that that is the community that the Lord is building here. One shaped by the word, not by one preacher, not even by all your elders, but by the words of our Lord Jesus. So that you and I go home today confessing His greatness because He welcomed in even us. Amen? Indeed, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Father, we ask that you would equip us with all we need. Indeed, we confess we have already been equipped with all we need for life and godliness. And so give us grace today to live trusting you, our God, our mighty God, who gives us this great, and sometimes if we're honest, terrifying gift of steadiness, of fearlessness, of joy, of patient endurance in the midst of anything. Not because we are strong, but because our God is mighty. Help us, Lord, to confess this in Jesus' name. Amen.